Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Um, first off, I apologize for the lack of episode in the last scheduled episode uh, was absent because I have been uh, particularly swamped and I haven't had time to prep the episodes that I've been wanting to prep. And so uh, I think that was the first, I think it was the first episode that we missed that was scheduled to be aired which was kind of a, it kind of hurt a little bit inside, you know, it's one of those things. But anyway, um, a lot has happened since then. I um, have a book on Amazon published, if you want to check that out. And it's particularly interesting if you were a fan of the Christmas and paganism, the follow-up for that, the feasts and the Eastern paganism episodes. All it is are um, mildly edited transcripts into a more readable format. Um place into a book along with the Christmas charts so that you can um, have that information written down before you. And I've been told having that information in front of you, uh, reading it opposed to just listening to it has been helpful. And so I hope that that's a tool you can use each year. And, and this is not my first official book. I hope to actually sit down and write a uh, quote unquote real book, but I know that these transcripts have been requested quite a bit. So you can check those out on Amazon called um, holidays and the feasts, um, by Nicholas Campbell. And I'll link it in the description if you want. We also put out the gospel video. Um, I'll be including that in the description for every episode now. Um, and it was great to produce. People have been requesting more videos. Uh, the problem is knowing what content to put in videos and video content takes more time and effort. And at this point, I don't have uh, the time to really think about that. So by the end of April, things should lighten up for me. Um, We'll have more people on rotation. Paul and Anthony will be on the podcast rotation, and we'll have writers on the rotation as well. Um, it, it'll be exciting to introduce new people to Christ the Cure so that um, I can kind of sit back and not be the sole face of what is happening here. And I hope that Anthony and Paul um, bless you. I'm sure they will. They'll bring different things to the table than what I can bring, uh, which is one of the great things about the body, right? So today's topic is... Different. It's been requested several times. It's not going to be very formal uh, compared to my other episodes, which sometimes you guys like more anyway. It's going to be an informal episode on what is being reformed. Um, the reason why I haven't done this episode before is because people very feel very strongly about this, and I and it's just a difficult topic to navigate because really the term is more fluid than most people like. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today, and uh, I'll include a, uh, a curveball at the very end that I thought was interesting that I've realized over the years. And um, yeah, that's it. So let's begin. We're going to begin with what is most common within the Reformed tradition is that Reformed, to be Reformed, you have to hold to the three C's. You have to be a Calvinist, you have to be Covenantal, and you have to be confessional. Now, the first one um, and shout out to Theocast. Theocast is a Reformed podcast that did an episode on this. I think it was like a four-minute episode. And they summarized the sentiment very well. You can go look them up. But that's basically what it is, is that you you are a Calvinist, you are a, a covenantalist opposed to a dispensationalist, and you are confessional opposed to non-confessional. So let's talk about the first one. We're going to kind of go through each one and discuss um, how how this works functionally. So Calvinism and Reformed theology often get equated, right? So, you know, if you're a Calvinist, you must be Reformed. However, that's not the case. Um, if you are a Calvinist and you're not confessional or covenantal, 
you're not reformed according to this definition, right? So um, John MacArthur, for example, he's a progressive dispensationalist. Well, I think it's progressive. Um, he calls himself a leaky dispensationalist, whatever that means. Um, but he's non-confessional in terms of he doesn't hold to a confession from the Reformation era. And he's not a covenant theologian. He's a dispensationalist and he's a Calvinist. So he's not reformed. So you can be Calvinist and not reformed, but you can't be reformed and not Calvinist according to this definition. And we'll get into where that kind of shifts around too. So we're actually going to skip ahead to the aspect of confessions because this is the big one. Um, and the standard reformed definition, if you are not confessional, you are not reformed. And so if you're a Calvinist, you hold to the five solas, right, of the Reformation, uh, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, unto the glory of God alone, but you're not confessional, then you're not reformed. And so here it's good to kind of touch on some of the history, right? So within the Reformation, you have, of course, Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, who are doing Reformation work at the same time, right? Sometimes we give everything to Luther. We shouldn't. I don't know why he's overemphasized. Zwingli was doing the same thing at the same time. And you have these two different traditions emerging. You have the Lutheran tradition and you have the Reformed tradition. So uh, this is one thing to get out the gate. Even though Martin Luther was a reformer, he is not classified as reformed by most anyone. Um, I see that distinction being made all the time by Lutherans. Jordan Cooper is kind of one of the top-notch Lutherans, um, and he uh, has videos, several videos, saying, you know, what's the distinction between Lutheran and Reformed? So that's an important distinction. Just because Martin Luther was a Reformer doesn't mean he's part of the Reformed tradition. So you're not Reformed if you're a Lutheran. There's a distinction there that needs to be made. And that's one of the, the most basic consensus that I can find across the board, which is quite interesting. So then you have Zwingli, um, and you get into the, the Belgic Confession, and the Heidelberg Catechism. And these, these two documents were the two forms of unity. And then you have the Remonstrants, or the Arminians, pop up. And then you have the drafting of the Canons of Dort at the Synod of Dort. And then that's where you get the three forms of unity. The Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the Canon of Dort. And down the road, you get the Westminster Standards, which the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms. And then down the road from there... You get the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Of course, there were um, additions prior to that, but we're, we're not getting into all the weeds there. Um, there was a distinction between the particular Baptists and the general Baptists. The particular Baptists were the Calvinists, and the general Baptists were the Arminians. And so the particular Baptists would be more along that Reformed branch, while the general Baptists would be seen as not so. If that confused you, it's okay. We're going to stop and kind of rethink that. So Originally, the Reformed tradition was that tradition which came from Zwingli, and that was developed through the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism. So you have this rich um, tradition based off these two confessions. And then with the Canons of Dort, at the Synod of Dort, Reform got narrowed down a little bit more by including the Canons of Dort in the Three Forms of Unity. Now, a brief touching on the Canons of Dort. The Canons of Dort were a response to the Arminians or the Remonstrants. And so this was the the defining confessional document of Calvinism, so to speak. So at that point, you get the Westminster Standards, uh, which are distinguished from the three forms of unity. And that's pretty consensus as far as I can tell. Ligonier at Table Talk was happy to say that um, the three forms of unity or the Westminster Standards would be a confession. It's a specific confession. There's also forms of piety and worship that come into play, but um, 
we're not kind of going that far into the weeds here. So at this point, the Reformed tradition is either Dutch Reformed, the three forms of unity, or Presbyterian, which is the Westminster Standards. Now, enter in the particular Baptists who differ on, of course, infant baptism and how covenant theology works, specifically in the details, and then also ecclesiology. And this would be arguably the Reformed Baptists or the particular Baptists. Okay. At this juncture, there are debates about which one of these three um, are Reformed and which ones aren't. Uh, for many, Reformed Baptists is a non-existent thing. If you are a Reformed Baptist, you're not a you're not reformed because you don't hold to the confessions that came prior. You don't hold to infant baptism. Your ecclesiology is different. You're just not reformed. Um, some Baptists are happy to say, that's fine. I'm a particular Baptist. A lot of Baptists are saying, no, I'm a reformed Baptist. And so you can kind of see where that comes into play. At the same time, you do have the Dutch reform telling the, the Presbyterians in some capacity. It's not monolithic. It's not across the board. I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush, but you do see this happen where the Dutch Reformed will tell the Presbyterians, hey, you're not Reformed because you don't hold to the three forms of unity, you hold to the Westminster, uh, which is kind of one of those weird things because they're very similar. Um, I I can't even tell you the difference off the top of my head. Um, I'm not going to pretend like I'm an expert on any of those. But then if you step back further, um, you have that which came before the Canons of Dort with the Remonstrants and Jacob Arminius who held to the Belgian Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, and they would consider themselves Reformed. Um, this one is usually the one you never hear about, but there are Reformed Arminians who hold to those two confessions of faith still, but they just aren't Calvinist. And so this particular understanding kind of, um, kind of throws a wrench in the whole discussion. And in fact, if you look at the World Alliance of Reformed Churches, you'll actually find that they include Arminians in the Dutch tradition. Um, so they're still seen as reformed in other parts of the world. And so this is where it kind of gets more fluid than, than we like to think. So um, it's hard for us to conceive that Arminius and the Remonstrants saw themselves as um, reformed. It's hard to conceive that they held to the Belgic and the Heidelberg Catechism, but it's been admitted by um, various scholars that it allows for that. And that's what they held. They just differed on the specifics of soteriology. And so whenever they add in the cans of Dort, it make it specific to soteriology Therefore, it, it, it narrows it down to where the Arminians are not included because it's the three forms of unity, not the two forms of unity. Um, there's a great conversation that I was going to include here, but I don't think I'm going to. It's Can You Be a Reformed Arminian with Dr. Matthew Pinson on um, Nicholas Noy Noyola. Hopefully I said that right, brother. Um, his channel on YouTube. You can go check that out. But then you have articles about Reformed Arminianism and and the self-professing Reformed Arminian, uh, Roger Olson, also discusses this weird disconnect between the definition and how it's been reinterpreted today. Uh, and so it becomes this weird game, really, about who is Reformed and who is not. Reformed becomes the litmus test of clear orthodoxy. Uh, Reformed becomes the clear test of who has sound doctrine, who can be trusted, and who is actually biblical. In fact, you'll even have Reformed Baptists say that they're more Reformed because they continue to Reform out of infant baptism and ecclesiology, and then you'll have the Dutch saying that they're more Reformed because they hold to the original three forms of unity over against the Westminster and the, the, the Baptists. And so it becomes this weird, weird discussion that we really need to have more grace with instead of um, treating it as an um, accolade or um, an honorary title that we can attribute to our names. Uh, Ligonier at Table Talk 
Um, they have the magazine table talk and it says, what does it mean to be reformed? And they kind of summarize like this. Um, and given this history, what does it mean to be reformed? I think a measure of charity and patience is required because the question does not have a clear cut answer. The word has a more inclusive definition as well as a less inclusive definitions and both definitions have a long history of use. What I mean by the inclusive definition of the word reformed, I mean the definition that includes a larger number of believers who profess to be reformed, confessional Presbyterians, as well as reformed Baptists, for example. When I speak of a less inclusive definition of reformed, I mean the definition that includes a smaller number of believers, those who understand the word reformed restricted essentially to the confessions of faith, the three forms of unity in the Westminster Standard, and to specific forms of piety and worship. So even if you look here, the more in, the more exclusive Definition still includes the Westminster Confession whenever people would argue the point, right? Uh, and it excludes the Reformed Baptists. And so even, even on Ligonier, you see this dynamic kind of show its face. Uh, the more inclusive definition of the word reform focuses on the narrow range of the doctrines as defining what it means to be reformed. Um, and they say that the debate over the meaning of the word reformed is a wonderful opportunity for those on both sides to dig deeper into Scripture and into the riches of our theological heritage while exercising the charity and patience encouraged by the heritage itself. I think that's fantastic. I like the sentiment, obviously. I don't think that any term should be used as a theological club. I don't think that, um, you know, so let's kind of get into, um, let's kind of get into the personal uh, bit here. Whenever I was an adherent of the 1689 Confession, which now I lean more towards progressive covenantalism, which has slight differences from the 1689 um, on particular issues, not really much. We're very close, closer than a Presbyterian and a um, Reformed Baptist, that's for sure. But whenever I was a Reformed Baptist, um, it became very stressful um, and very kind of annoying to be put outside of the community of being Reformed because I was a quote-unquote Reformed Baptist. I wasn't truly Reformed. And so it became this weird uh, tribal game. And I think that that needs to be addressed. I think that that kind of attitude isn't helpful. And I think Ligonier's... Um, Ligonier's statement here is helpful in that, but even whenever you consider what it means to be reformed in terms of other groups who come, if you think about it, and you think about the two forms of unity, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgian Confession, and if you truly take on face value the reality that the Remonstrants and Jacob Arminius and Reformed Arminians hold to those confessions today, they would be closer to reformed than a London Baptist or a Presbyterian in that sense, because um, they're closer to the Dutch tradition prior to the cans of Dort. And I know that just saying that kind of um, becomes a point of contention. And the fact that it becomes a point of contention is very bizarre. Um, we shouldn't be wrapped up in such a minute detail. Um, if we define Reformed generically in terms of kind of an ad fontes, back to the source, we're Reformed back to the scriptures, then I'm all for it. Um, however, given... Given how the word is used and understood, it doesn't seem wise to utilize it for myself, and so I haven't, at least not in a while. And I found that th there's many assumptions that kind of that I, that are made based off of my theology, um, that I am reformed based off of having sound doctrine, and that kind of goes back to again the litmus test, where in order to be trusted, in order to be orthodox, um, you have to be reformed. And I think that in some way this is um, a way for people to feel safe. Um, it's much easier to, um, say, Hey, this guy's reformed. Oh, I can trust him. Right. Because you know that they're close to your tradition. Um, I mean, most of the guys I read are reformed in, um, in doctrine at the same time, you have great 
men of God like John MacArthur and uh, various individuals who went to my seminary who are great scholars and who are not Reformed. They're dispensational or progressive dispensationalists, and I respect them. And uh, and so I, I don't think that um, we should be so tribal in that way. And I think that that is frowned upon whenever we consider the context of texts like 1 Corinthians, where they were arguing over who belonged to who. Um, in many ways, we kind of do the same thing. Um, I do think it's a helpful label if you can properly define it. I don't think it's worth arguing about who falls into what category. I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's biblical to ostracize someone who's not Reformed. Um, and if you would ostracize someone who is Reformed, then you are left ostracizing me because I wouldn't consider myself Reformed anymore because um, while I adhere very closely to the 1689, technically I don't. And even then, uh, whenever I did hold to the 1689 Confession, I wasn't technically Reformed according to Presbyterian standards or Dutch standards. And then you kind of get into more of the weeds there. So I'll put a bunch of uh, links in the description here. You can read through them yourself. And I've, I've seen a range of definitions on what it means to be formed from you adhere to the five solos and you're a Calvinist. And it's a very limited understanding. Um, but if I'm going to conclude, I'll happily conclude that to be reformed, you hold to the three C's of Calvinist, covenantal, and confessional. Um, and where you want to go from there, I'm not sure. But um, you can kind of debate which confessions are included. Uh, if you go by Ligonier standards, you have the more inclusive one that includes Reformed Baptists and the 1689 Confession. If you go with the exclusive one, then you only have the Westminster Standards and the three forms of unity. So the term is a little bit more fluid than most people like to think, yet it seems best to just accept the most predominant view at this point in time. Um, it is much easier to just accept that definition than to try to argue the point. And so if you don't fall into the three forms of unity or the Westminster standard, then you may save yourself a lot of headaches by just saying that you're not reformed. If you're a reformed Baptist and you find yourself struggling with those dynamics within internal dialogues, then just call yourself a particular Baptist. Uh, the Baptists were happy to do that. Um, at the end of the day, I think that it's important to remember that uh, Christ is superior. Being a Christian, a servant of Christ, is at the forefront of our mind. And all, all titles, all all honors, all accolades, all adherences are all loss if we're not in Christ, if we're not tied first and foremost to Christ. All of that is rubbish. Christ should be at the forefront of our mind, which means that ultimately, whenever these discussions occur, we keep Christ at the forefront and we reflect his lordship, his change in our lives, and thus love our neighbors with grace and mercy through these discussions, knowing that Christ is supreme and that all things are a loss when we consider the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. So just be graceful, be seasoned with salt, love one another, contend for the true gospel, because right now um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of bigger fights right now than um, who's reformed, who's not reformed. Um, right now we need to worry about uh, the gospel, the deity of Christ, uh, especially the deity of Christ. I, I can never get over the numbers that came out from the Ligonier State of Theology Survey on the deity of Christ. That's just baffling. So let's be united in that because that's 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 um, that's insane. Uh, with that all said, I want to thank all of you guys for being with me, um, and and whatever medium you are, whether you know you predominantly 
um, encounter me on Instagram or Facebook or, um, you know, the podcast or um, I just want to thank you all for the encouragement that you guys send me via email and those mediums. And then um, I want to thank all my patrons. You guys make this run. I haven't been the best at giving you patron exclusive materials. And yet you guys have been gracious and um, kind uh, to not expect any of those because you just want to support what we're doing here at Crisis the Cure. I'm really excited about the new team members. And um, Lord willing, Historia Ecclesiastica will launch in 2022. I'm currently working on a project um, that will be an episode for that podcast. Um, that podcast, uh, you can find the Instagram page at Historia underscore Ecclesiastica. And right now it's just general historic information. A lot of that stuff will be covered in the podcast in more depth. We're going to start off um, with the Greco-Roman setting in the New Testament world, uh, you know, Second Temple Judaism um, and what that looked like practically. And then we'll get into church history because I want to set up the the background so you know the world that this is all emerging in and then we'll go through. Um, at this juncture, my goal is to just make it to the 5th century. Whether or not we go beyond the 5th century is beyond me, but it's going to be a slow-burning podcast. And it's going to be organized in a way that's going to be a little bit slow-burning. There may be episodes that are 5 minutes. There may be episodes that are 15 minutes. It just depends on the content. Um, but it's going to be broken up by biography. It's going to be broken up by events, by themes. And then it's going to have the chrono uh, the chronological episodes. So you'll have the biographies and you have the chronological episodes that kind of discusses um, how these people, after you learned about the biographies, interact with one another. If I can manage that particular setting. Uh, prep has been pretty minimal. I have an idea of how I want it to look, but you know how things go. Um, you can support that by becoming a patron. And that's at uh, patreon.com slash Christ is the cure. Um, I am very appreciative of the patrons. They help me not pay for the hosting for the website and stuff like that out of pocket. They make this run. And adding a second podcast uh, will obviously increase that particular need. Um, my goal is to have a bunch of episodes of Historia Ecclesiastica and background materials made up and published for Patreons months in advance before launch. I will not launch Historia Ecclesiastica until I have a bank because I can't afford to do, um, you know, those multiple ventures at the same time. Prep work for each one takes too much. So in terms of the crisis of cure, um, what happens on, we're still bi-weekly on this show. What happens in the next episode um, is kind of up in the air. We may talk about Philippians 3 because Philippians has been rocking my world lately. If I'm honest, it's been extremely humbling and has just radically changed how I view, um, how I view everything. Um, and so I, I think I may do an episode on Philippians, but other than that, upcoming episodes that you can expect are homosexuality, part one, part two, maybe part three, depending on how long it takes to get through part two, because that's where some of the meat's going to be. Um, well, some of the meat in terms of uh, in terms of time consumption. And then we're going to do head coverings eventually. Um, I want to touch on that because I've done some reading on that. And then... Uh, we'll probably have Paul and Anthony in by then. And we're discussing um, what's going to happen on the show with them. So that's the update for crisis cure. Thank you all for your patience with me. It's been an extremely busy, busy few months. Um, it's been stressful, but it's been good. It's been beneficial. I've been growing a lot and it's been, um, it's been fantastic to have you encourage and build up the podcast and the show and support uh, support Christ Secure by buying the book. I didn't expect it to be that popular. And so now I'm self-conscious about all the typos because it was self-edited 
and it was kind of just thrown together because I thought just a few people would want to buy the transcripts, but sure enough, it kind of took off. And so if you did purchase that, I appreciate it. And if you feel so loved, leave a review on Amazon, um, letting me know how it is. And yeah, so that's it. God bless you all. And I hope you have a wonderful week and we'll see you in two weeks.